Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'd really appreciate if you could hit that like button, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other podcasting platforms, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here, Luke. It's great to see you. Good to see you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Luke, for those out there who don't know who you are, mm-hmm. if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your career highlights and your background. Yeah. I mean, I guess current position is Chief Revenue Officer, which is a great position to hold in in sales. And I suppose for the, the conversation around this podcast today, I'd like to share a bit about you know the journey that, that got me to that point. Prior to that, I guess I started out in account management and worked through to sales and then have come back around to running both customer success and sales and partnerships and other parts of the revenue organization, which is a joy. It's the bit that where you get to exercise all of the experience you've gained to really kind of make things move much faster. So yeah, that's where I've come from so far and where I'm at. And yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's go all the way back if we can to maybe those first few early days when you first started out in your career journey and we'll maybe work our way up to to today. So talk to us about how did you get into sales in the first place? It's a good question. I think a lot of people of my generation will have a story of like initial reluctance going to sales. I didn't plan to go into it, you know, that kind of story, you know. And what I think is really interesting today, which I'd like to touch on later, is there are a lot more people who are aware that sales is a great career. And I've noticed a lot of that in the comments you've made in your podcasts and and on LinkedIn. And I think that's a great source of inspiration for people to recognize what an amazing career it is. So for me, when I say I started off reluctant to go into sales, I I guess I better explain why. You know, sales to me was something that was done by a certain type of person with a certain mindset. And back in the day when I started out in, in that area, those characteristics were very, I guess, limiting in terms of the profile of people that would go into that career. Often people who had reached a sales career of a senior level were of a much older age. There was a long sort of battle to get to those more lucrative positions. There was a a lifestyle that went along with it, which may not have been conducive to everybody's appetites. And maybe there were characteristics that people didn't feel were positive, you know, ultimately. And so those things kind of made me think I didn't belong in sales, right? And I think a lot of people have felt like that at times. So I found my way into technology because like a lot of people, I found it a fascinating area, you know, and people can get excited about solving problems with technology, especially new technology. So I found myself working in markets that were nascent, you know, something completely new that people hadn't seen before that could impact business in a big way. And you could get passionate about that. So the first area I started out was working with customers on the account management side that I felt I could, I could do a good job in. I could do a credible job with integrity and with empathy and make things better. You know, that's how I felt about it. So I guess, why didn't I think sales had all of those qualities? Perhaps because I think you know, back then there was a there was a, a process to selling that started fairly self selfish goals, I guess, of the individual and the company, and ended at contract signature, and then everything else became someone else's problem. So there didn't seem to be a high degree of empathy in it, and I don't think it therefore seemed to require a high degree of empathy. And so maybe the characteristics that followed, you know, weren't celebrated. Empathy wasn't really celebrated. And I think if you look across the internet now, everybody is really kind and really empathetic and wants to tell everybody that. And I think that's great because what it says is that successful people come out and spoken about the role of empathy and kindness and listening and integrity in achieving those goals. 
And so that's set a different bar. You know, when you hear very successful people say those things are critically important, I think that appeals to a much wider range of, of people in terms of their alignment to a career in, in sales and in customer success, by the way. So I think for me, you know, what I've, what I've tried to bring into my career in sales is starting with an empathetic sales process. And what does that really mean? You know, being a great listener has always been a, a key skill for, for sales and customer success. But the old adage was that talking a lot was the characteristic of a salesperson. So even if it was a cliche, there must have been some truth in that. Maybe listening wasn't the, the, the goal. And actually in listening, you can unlock something that even the buyer sometimes hasn't got a clear idea of, which is what is the actual value beyond the technology purchase that they're about to make that the business is going to benefit from that drove this desire to, to purchase this technology in the first place? Sometimes the salespeople in mid-market are not dealing with somebody who actually has that knowledge. You know, what's the, in, the intrinsic need in the business? What's the pain that's going to be solved? If, if it's a tactical pain, what's the consequential pain that the business is feeling that's led to this decision to make a purchase? And so, you know, you can find in your early career that you're, you're locked into a short sales cycle with a tactical pain that you're trying to solve. And there isn't a lot of reception to you being more empathetic, trying to understand what it is that is the real value that's going to be created by making this technology purchase. But as you start to explore the consequential pains, you start to you start to listen more, ask good questions, listen more. You find out that there's some really powerful pains that the business is experiencing. And once you can get under the skin of that and align to that, you can really start to change your sales process into something I would describe as an empathetic sales process. And, and that means you start to identify what it is that, that everybody's going to value at the end of this, which goes beyond the implementation of the technology. In doing so, you're bringing customer success to bear earlier in the process. And then there's this sort of continuation of ownership of, of the need to deliver on that value that goes beyond that tech sale and that tech implementation. So I think, you know, those skill sets and those attributes and those characteristics now being more closely aligned to sales as a profession, you know, is, is quite a change from, from the, the, the characteristics that I saw when I was looking up and looking at, at people that were in those careers. And I think that's opened the doors for a lot more people to come in and really bring you know bring those characteristics to bear that was fun because i feel like we got a mini masterclass at the same time as learning more about your background so you know thanks for that deep dive and i'm probably going to revert back to that yeah. shortly so i want to spend a bit more time on those earlier years because it sounds like you got yourself into an ac account management mm -hmm. role there were some preconceptions before coming in some of which were maybe validated others of which weren't yeah what was it that led you to say, actually, I, I found a home within this sales umbrella? What was it that you latched onto yeah. that allowed you to lean in and then go on to build a phenomenal career? Yeah, I think I think it's a good it's a good question because I guess there's there's different points in everybody's career. So for me, I was offered jobs in sales, so there was something obviously somebody saw in me that they felt would be good in terms of sales, and and I kind of rejected the first one, and then felt it was a risk to my career to reject the second one, honestly. So I took a decision to go into a sales role because it was the second time I'd been offered a, an opportunity by the same company. And I felt like saying no just wouldn't work out. But also something had changed. I was, I'm old enough, not as old as Dan Head, who I mentioned in this podcast, is a good friend of mine. He's been on here before, but we're pretty close. But we both remember an era of, of sales where, which was pre-SaaS. And so what I was looking at in this opportunity was a SaaS solution. It was social media analytics it was it was a company that had acquired a social media analytics technology and the whole way the whole premise of selling SaaS was new you know this was not selling software 
with heavy services and, and infrastructure that had to be sold with it. We all know what SaaS is now because it's the norm. And so there were things about it that were new and therefore I didn't fear the benchmark of success that preceded it, you know, me having to live up to that. There was something to create. So that appealed to, I guess, my sense of adventure in, in going and creating something new and trying to do something with passion. So I, I took that step. And what I learned from that initially was how much energy you can spend demoing products without asking questions, understanding needs, and how much fun you can have being an evangelist, but what actually, but nav- finding out what actually delivers results in the end and, and why you were successful when you did win becomes a bit more of an art and a science, you know, to t- try and un- unpick and understand it. So I kind of got a, a grace period where I could go into a sales role in a new area with a new technology, but not be held up to a benchmark of, of skill sets that other people possessed in already. So I was able to learn basically, you know, in, uh, undercover. Interesting, really interesting. So one thing I want to explore with you is you've now spoken about the art, the science, leading with empathy and and a number of other things that really sounds like you feel construct what is an elite level seller ultimately. Mm -hmm. So as your career continued to evolve, you know, can you just kind of break down how much of a staple part those ingredients started to play Mm -hmm. and you getting closer to your own version of mastery as a seller, as a field seller, just walk us through that journey, how you started to pick up each of those pieces yeah. and then pulled them together again to make that a complete picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I touched on a point there, which was you can be, you can exhaust yourself just repeating things without understanding the process that's actually going to be more effective. So most companies have figured out their sales process, but individuals coming into sales also have to start to learn how to appreciate the value of a process. And so I think, you know, going into an unstructured sales process in a new technology, in a new space allowed me time to sort of get it wrong and then figure out how to get it right. And and, and I suppose I had a sort of an experience which led me to value defining a process. And so I think process is key. You know, I, I, again, sort of just referencing Dan's comments in some of the earlier podcasts, he talked about time as one of the things that salespeople don't always recognize is their you know, the reducing time is the, you know, is the, is the thing that they're up against. So in a, you know, identifying a process is about the efficiency, you know, for both the buyer and the seller and really unlocking the, you know, the, the ways to reduce the friction and re- compact that time down to everybody getting what they need in, in the most optimal way. And it also reflects on the, on the seller's time, you know, how many, how much capacity have you got to actually, you know, hit higher targets. So I think learning a kind of respect for process for me, I got to practice it with a lot of freedom. No one, no one had defined a process for me initially. So I got to learn the value of creating one. And I guess discipline also comes into that right as well. You can define the process, but you've got to also develop the discipline to, to use it responsibly and to, and to use it consistently. Absolutely. I mean, a couple of things that you said there that stood out is that, you know, you one mentioned discipline mm-hmm. and two, you mentioned you got to learn all of these things. So what I wanted yeah. to understand is how and where did you learn? Yeah. What underpin that? And then when you talk about discipline, mm-hmm. you know, how much of that can be developed versus how much of that did you just feel was innate in you? Mm-hmm. It's a very, very good question because I, I think that discipline, I, in fact, I had a funny conversation. I've got two young children, one a daughter, 11 and son, eight. And I had a conversation the other day with my son about discipline and my, and my daughter about discipline. I said, what do you think discipline means? And my daughter said, it means getting told off. I was like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> so for you, it's a very negative word. And my son said, it's something you, something you have to do, it means something you have to do. 
And I thought both were interesting because both were kind of negative. Like, why would anybody be motivated to be disciplined? And then my son is a stunt scooter rider for fun, right? That's what he does for for fun. He's only eight years old, but he want, he he screamed out the top of his lungs, you know, that he'd, he'd 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 pulled off this stunt, and it's called a tail whip for anyone who knows about these things. And he'd landed it, and this was after four and a, four and a half months of attempting to do it. And I said to him, think back to that. There was something you knew you wanted to do, and that puts a smile on your face. You know, the thought of achieving that tail whip puts a smile on your face. So that's something that you really wanted to do. And what did you have to do to get there? Well, you had to do a lot of things that you perhaps didn't want to do on repeat to get there. So perhaps discipline is knowing that there are things you have to do that you wouldn't necessarily choose to do it, you know, on repeat over time. But the motivation to do that is is this thing that puts a smile on your face that you will have at the end of it. So he said, okay, so discipline is doing things that you don't always want to do to get something that you really do want. And I thought that kind of like childlike explanation sort of is a good way into answering your question about whether or not discipline is something you can acquire, whether whether the skill sets be a great salesperson is something you can, can acquire. I think one thing we all know about salespeople is they have goals. You know, they have personal goals and the financial support that, that sales can offer to achieve those goals is a, is a, is a motivation. And many of, many of us who've gone into that career have, have acknowledged the great prizes, you know, that are at the end of that road and, and how they can unlock the things that matter to us in our personal lives. And then we've recognized that to achieve those things, there's a level of discipline that's required. So perhaps many of us wouldn't start off saying we're hugely disciplined characters, but can acquire those skills to become that. Some, some may find it more natural, but others can absolutely learn it. Yeah, most definitely. I, I'm often known for having this saying of discipline over motivation, actually. And the, the reason I often say that is because motivation can come and go. It can peak and then it can wane. You know, sometimes we wake up and we're bursting off the seams ready to go and other days it's just not there. But to your point, and I love the, the kind of child-based analogy, it's being able to just still wake up and get it done, regardless of how you're feeling, because you know that you're committed to the outcome that you want to drive. Mm -hmm. And so, so that concept of discipline and consistency over an extended period of time, I often say, makes success inevitable. So I love the way that you broke that down for the children. And I think we can learn a bit about that as adults, too. I want to take a step forward in terms of the question I also had around how you learnt in those early days, because you did speak about learning a lot and ingraining process and all of those types of things. Mm -hmm. Was this through mentorship? Was this through indoctrination of being around others? Just help us understand where you actually learned to ingrain some of this process. Yeah, it's a good question because mentorship is a really great thing to unlock, you know, your potential faster. But even if you don't have mentors, you can still, you can have mentors that don't know them and your, your mentors. So you can start observing people, you know, who are doing things in a particular way and trying to figure out why that particular pattern and motion is creating a better result for them. And I think one of the traits of great salespeople that I've encountered is that they will always be open to identifying better ways of doing things. And I think that sort of non-traditional mindset you know they're open to it to innovative ways of accomplishing the task is absolutely key for those that have, have, have had some longevity in in a sales career so i had mentors that didn't know they were mentors you know i guess you know in my early career people that i kind of kept an eye on you know to see how they were doing things and quietly trying to figure it out perhaps looking back i would have benefited from maybe stepping forward and identifying i would i would need a mentor to, to advance my career faster but i think i I sort of just learned quietly from other people 
in conversations in questions that I would ask here and didn't sort of identify like somebody to kind of mentor me. But I think today I know many great salespeople who offer that mentorship now, which I think is another thing about the sales community that's, that's really changed. You know, there's a lot of willingness to share information and share best practices, which I think again, goes back to my earlier point about original perceived characteristics of salespeople as being competitive and in being competitive, not wanting to share advantages with other people. And I think that's completely changed. All of the best salespeople I know spend a lot of their time sharing their best practices. And of course, it has no detrimental effect on their success. And it says something about their mindset because they're all, they're sharing because they're also open to learning as well. So I think for me, I didn't have specific mentors. I would recommend people get mentors. There's a lot of people around now willing to be mentors, but I observed different people who are having patterns of success and they could come from sales. They could come from sales development. They could come from customer success. They could come from marketing, they could come from sales leadership. They could even come from, you know, careers outside of that field and trying to put it back together and say, do I understand why I am being successful and do I understand why other people are being successful and what can I take from that and how can I learn? Yeah, no, it's a a fantastic way of putting it. And I think there's one of the benefits of having these types of platforms as well, right? Where it allows people to to be able to learn at scale. And also as, as Dan spoke about, right, time is such a precious resource. It's being able to also package up sometimes knowledge and put it in a format where others can consume it exactly like we're doing right now, which is fantastic. I want to fast forward to you taking your first leadership role here, Luke, and just understand a bit more about when you knew you were ready, you know, whether that opportunity, you know, how that opportunity first came about for you. And really that first six months in a leadership role, just talk to us about that transitionary period. Yeah, I guess I had actually my first leadership type management role outside of sales or sort of in between. I worked for a company that was in the expedition industry, completely not SaaS, right? Not software. And I was given a position of management of expedition leaders. And these were very unique characters. They were people who had achieved great things, far greater than I have achieved or ever will achieve. There was a guy who was the youngest person to climb, to go from the lowest point on earth to the top of Mount Everest. Guy who'd climbed Mount Kilimanjaro on a dialysis machine, having had kidney failure. A, an, an ex-Vietnam vet who led, led expeditions. These were great people, right? And I could go on with that list who were quite humbling characters to work around because of their own humility and their passions sat outside of commercial achievements and, and sort of more showy forms of recognition. But they were absolute legends, you know? And, and so what I learned from that, being put in, in a, a position of management of those people, was that when you work with great people who have low ego and have humility, what they need from a manager is, is, is something. And it's not a competition between who's better or who's in charge. So there were things that they needed, you know, from, from, from a manager that I was able to offer. So it was incredible to me. I was like, how, you know, how am I able to offer something to these great people? But there were things that I could offer that I could offer that other people could have offered. So the, the role of management was, was described to me as something very different. When you go into sort of sales, there's a sort of assumption of almost like a hierarchical climb to, to leadership, which means the best people are going to be at the top, you know, and everyone else is coming up, you know, and there might be some truth in that because of course there's time and experience is a factor of success, even if it's not the only factor of success. But it said something, I started off looking at at management and leadership, not as something about being the great, having the greatest person in lead, you know, at the job in leadership. So I learned that lesson straight away there because I was nowhere I was better than these guys at what they did. And, uh, and then I guess in, in software, 
I was given my first opportunity to basically build a team. And that was almost out of necessity. So I became a default manager. It was you're the first in, you know, they who else are they going to ask to, to, to manage the next group of people? And probably they'll trust you for a certain distance. And if the business gets up to a certain value, they might want to look at the your ability to continue that growth trajectory further. And they may then look at your skill set and say, there's someone else that could come in and do that better now and faster. So sometimes you get an unlocking in terms of management because you're in the right place at the right time and you get this shorter period of sort of exposure to it. And I would say in that one, it was it was interesting because I probably... I probably was advised to do the opposite of what had just happened in the expedition company, which was almost assume that everybody else I hired would would be junior to my current experience and 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 level. And again, that sort of natural hierarchy, and that one didn't sort of seem to sit right because it didn't make sense to me. And I'll come back to that point in a minute. And then the ne- the next opportunity I had was car- I carried on as an individual cr- contributor for a short period after that, and sort of reimmersed myself in just thinking about being an individual contributor. And that was really great because all of a sudden, nobody's if nobody's told you're a manager, nobody acts like you're a manager either. So you're kind of wandering around going, everyone's acting differently to in a different way to when I was there and I was a manager. And that was a good a good sort of humbling experience to go back to just, you know, how, can I can I learn again what, what the traits and skills of an individual contributor? And then I switched companies and took on a first person on the ground position. So I was kind of repeating that opportunity to start building out a team. And then there came the question, are they going to put someone in over me or am I going to be the next person to carry it on? And and I remember my brother-in-law pushing me to ask for the opportunity to, to continue that trajectory. And I asked for it and, and they gave it to me. And this, straight away, I made a decision to start hiring the best people that, that could for the role and not assume that I had to be better than them in order to be able to manage them. And I think that was a great unlocking for me because my success followed very quickly that I was able to curate a team of great people who delivered great results under my management. And actually that's what you're supposed to do. It turns out. Yeah. So, you know, that was the, the first two steps and there's a few beyond that, but yeah, no, that's, there was a ton in that really, really interesting. One of the things I wanted to double tap on is that moment where your brother said to you to go for the role mm-hmm. and then you went for the role. Yeah. Now, what was it that gave you the confidence to go for the role? Because I can only assume that your activities or your performance or, or, or something made you say, right, now's the time I'm going for it. So just bring us into that moment. It's a good question because I've never attempted to try and accelerate my career, which is, which is, which is interesting because actually in some ways I might have got to certain levels in my career earlier than, that, than some people have, but it wasn't intentional to start with. So when that, when that opportunity came up, my decision to go for it was both my brother-in-law's advice that it was a good time, to, you know, essentially he, it was almost from his point of view, it was more of a sort of advice to move out of individual contributing as soon as possible. You'll have a longer career in management was his assumption, right? And there may have been some truth in that, but that in the end wasn't my main driver for doing it. My main driver for doing it was I actually felt I had enough knowledge of both the industry, the sale, the process, the prospects, the ideal customer profile, the market to actually offer a level of coaching to that team. So I didn't think of myself at that point as like a strategic manager or leader. I thought of myself as what individual contributors need, you know, someone who can coach them through that sales process if they're new to it, 
if they're new to that particular sale, that particular technology. So I, I knew I had something that I could, if I could scale it, was going to add value. So I, I had the confidence to say, I probably am the best person for this position right now for all of those reasons. So it was not entirely selfishly motivated. It was, although of course it's not altruistic either, but I, I knew that I would make things better if I could scale myself and I knew I had something to offer. So it felt like it was a good decision for the business and I pitched it as such and they agreed. So that get that create that created that first level. But I, I didn't go into that believing I was a strategic leader or manager. I went into that believing I was going to be the coach. Got it. Really interesting. And I guess the pivot question from that is if you were advising someone else who was in a similar scenarios where they thought, actually, there's a role that I can see that I feel I'm ready for and I think I should go for it. I often hear two schools of thought. Sometimes people say, well, actually, just keep doing what you're doing, right? Attain absolute mastery in your craft, wait for an opportunity and then wait until, you know, that opportunity lands on your lap. And then they hear the other school of thought, which is a bit more like your one, which is put your hand up, go for it. What would your advice be and why? My advice, and I guess it can differ, is there's got to be something that you you believe you have that will actually help the business if they give you that opportunity. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes people forget when they do put their hand up. You know, we live in a world of like X Factor and Britain's Got Talent and everyone's being encouraged to just throw their hat in the ring, be confident, believe in yourself. All of those things are true, but, you know, we all see it and it makes good entertainment. Sometimes people throw the hat into the ring at the wrong time. They're not ready for it. They haven't thought about whether they bring something to the table that actually matches the expectations of the person who's going to choose them or not. So I think one of the first things you can do is is answer that question for yourself do I bring something to the table now? And do I have to make sure people are aware that, that I can and I'm ready for it? Because we're all busy people. And sometimes it does help if somebody comes to you and says, here's the rationale as to why I think this is a good time for you to invest in me. And here's why I would, why if you gave me that opportunity, I would take it with both hands and I would, and I would work it really, really well. But I have seen people kind of say, you know, things like, I'm not afraid to fail fast. You know, I'm not afraid to break things. And the one thing they've forgotten is the person hiring them might be very afraid <laughs> of that happening, right? And there's a difference between somebody not having done something before and being able to achieve something and having the hunger to get there and having demonstrated something that, that will convince the person that there's value in what they're doing. So I think just aligning your ambitions with, a, with the ambitions of the, of the person that you're going to ask is a really smart way to go about it. But do put your hand up. Do put your hand up because they, they they may not have thought of it. And it can be as simple as that. And they, they've now going, well, maybe, you know, and then they start thinking about a logical flow as to why that could work. But don't expect somebody to, to take a risk on you unless there's some credibility to the to the risk. Yeah, it goes back a bit to the old adage of, you know, you don't ask, you don't get to a certain degree as part of it. I think the other side of it is actually, you know, you've got to go on that journey of attaining your own version of mastery in your craft because that in itself gives you the confidence to actually put your hand in the air, not in a slightly timid fashion, but actually to put your hand in the air loud and proud and say, I'm absolutely the person for this job. I've achieved X, Y, and Z. I've done all of these things. Of course, there's a stretch for the business. This is how I'm going to mitigate that stretch. And these are the things and activities that I know maybe are a gap that I'm going to need support with. And I think being able to help and understand it from the company's perspective is, you know, they're looking at risk mitigation. You know, do we 
bring in someone who's been there and done it before, so to speak? Or do we take a little bit of a risk, right, by developing someone into a role? So I think whenever someone's putting up their hand, it's trying to plan around it, thinking as if you were the company, what were the things that you'd be concerned of? And what can you bring to the company in terms of a bit of a plan of action that can help de-risk how much of a perceived risk, you know, that person taking that step up could be? So just something additive to what you've described there. Now, Luke, as a CRO, right, many people look at you and your role and what you're doing right now as really the end state, right? It's what many AEs and SDRs and people early in their career aspire to be. So just bring us into your mind of what actually a day, a week in the life of a CRO is actually like. Mm. It's a really good question because it will probably differ in different companies at different stages. I think to sort of link to the point you made a moment ago, the additive point, what the business requires from you is something you should seek out and try and understand before you put your hat in the ring. You know, so like with the X Factor analogy, just make sure you can sing, you know, before you put your hand up and say you should, you should hire me to be the next, the next pop star. So yeah, seek out some knowledge about what that business actually requires right now because they'll often be on a sort of knife edge between two decisions, which is, am I going to hire somebody of a level of experience that is now so far removed from maybe the day-to-day requirements at our stage that they become someone who comes in and can identify the problems but can't actually lead us out of it, you know, with a degree of practicality. And, and equally, it could be the opposite, right? It could be, it could be the opposite, that you've, you've not, your experience is a little shallower on the strategic side of, of the role for the stage. And so perhaps you'll be slower to deliver the results in a business that's already reached a certain scale, you'll operate differently. Maybe your experience, maybe your recency in terms of your experience in a more sort of tactical execution of uh, and an individual contributor role would mean that you were less able. So you've got to look at what you're aiming at. What I've tended to do is try to go through a certain, ser- a certain series pattern multiple times, each time coming up another level. And the reason for that is that Having gone through it once, you've learned something. And now one of the things that that you can't do is you can't, because of the level you're at, you can't affect the strategy more from where you are. And you're at the limit of what you can deliver as an individual contributor. And perhaps you can see the benefit that, you know, that you could add if you had that position. So then you try and take that next position and go back through those same stages at another company. But this time you've got, you're given a few more levers that you control and things that you can authority that you can leverage you know to help the business so you can put that experience to bear and then you might repeat it you know a third time or even a fourth time and each time you're trying to take that experience take the learnings the the things that are going to enable you to get through those stages faster to achieve those goals faster to un to, to remove the friction to unpick the you know to fast track the kind of realization that there are better ways of doing things know when not to hesitate, know when to, to, to take a breath and, and all those things you pick up through experience. And then eventually, and the way I would describe the CRO role is you, you're actually given the, some ownership of the strategy, you know, and that's almost like the highest level of impact you could have. And it will be one of the, and, and if you, but it will be a very scary thing if you haven't gone through all the levels that preceded it with enough time to sort of cure all of those, all of that knowledge and experience into something where you don't feel that the gap between what you just did and what you're about to do is too large. Because one thing you can't do is really lose your nerve because 
you'll start to doubt and then you'll you know you're in this position of leadership and people need to see clarity of purpose they need to hear rationale for for why we're going to do it this way and have confidence to go and follow on and, and execute on those plans so you have to have built up some experience absolutely really uh fascinating i was following along all of those steps as you were going through them what do you feel are the biggest misconceptions with the cro role because again i think that when people look ahead there's still an element of mystique around the role it's, it's still i wouldn't say brand new but there's a a newness still to what the cro role is and what it continues to evolve into you know as you were taking that step i'm sure you had your own preconceptions and you know clearly a number of friends in these current roles as well just one wondering what you feel maybe some of the bigger misconceptions are out there when you just listen to what the market describes around the role versus your lived experience in the role? Yeah, it's a good question because I, th- I think it is much better understood now. I mean, I think, I don't know whether, I don't know actually how old the, the CRO title is actually, I probably should know that, but I think that I can remember a point at which it was new. And, and I think what was new about it was that there was typically a global sales and marketing leader and then there was typically a, a, a customer success leader, although customer success was new. And what I remember, you know, a lesson that I learned, I suppose, the thing that appealed to me about a CRO role, whether that was working under a CRO, because that was appealing and for the reasons I'll explain in a moment, or eventually becoming one. And I think that key thing was, if the CEO has two people essentially competing for different parts of the revenue, it creates a sort of a dynamic which flows down in the organization and causes a lot of inertia and friction between getting the benefit of, of being able to maximize your revenues through an emphasis on customer success or through an emphasis on sales or any shifting balance between the two, because there's actually this kind of slightly siloed approach. And I think, I imagine many people have experienced it, you know, the, those periods in a company where growth from existing stagnates slightly because the skill set to leverage that growth, perhaps in the earlier days sat in sales, you know, for, for running a sales process on an existing account for a larger opportunity, and perhaps in the early days didn't sit in customer success. And then the desire for customer success to own that revenue and try and solve that problem themselves without the assistance of sales kind of created this unnecessary friction. And of course, it was coming from two people having slightly different agendas and both, you know, reporting up to, the, to, to a CEO who essentially wasn't in a position to maybe solve those problems so my first observation was that a CRO was someone who came in and didn't actually have to think like a sales leader purely or think like a a customer success leader purely but someone who could think about the alignment between the two and ensuring that we were maximizing the revenues as a company based on whichever weighting was more appropriate or whatever whatever customer journey adjustments go to market process changes were going to be most effective. And then they had the decision on making sure all of the compensation and practices and cadences were all aligned for everybody to be able to work together to accomplish that. So they didn't have to have have a a debate about that. They could they could sort of execute on that. So for me, I was like, wow, that's that's a role I would like to work under. You know, because having worked in companies where perhaps they didn't have that, you saw the inertia, you saw the friction, and you saw the unnecessary you know, problems that created by having two separate sort of streams. So that was my first thought. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. So one of the other things that I'm really curious about is you've spoken a lot through this this whole podcast about empathy, right, and leading with empathy. And then we've also had conversations almost about the old school way of doing things versus the much more modern and new school way of thinking about things. So what I want to explore with you on that is that sometimes I think that the stereotype with the old school is a lot more hardened, 
very much more just, you know, just get it done, high octane, really super intense. And then we look at this modern kind of, you know, overall sales playbook and, and just the industry. There's a lot more talk about mental health and mitigating burnout. I'm listening to you today. You you spend a lot of time talking about leading with empathy. So, you know, let's just have an open discussion here about, you know, what is your stance on on how important it actually is to have a bit more of a hardened approach when you think about leadership mm. and the way that you approach teams versus actually, you know, whether that whole concept of leading with empathy and really prioritizing mental health, how important you feel that is to really evangelize teams in this modern era? It's a great question because, of course, again, you know, we want to make sure that the roles are attractive to people who are different. You know, I think, you know, the key thing here is that we don't just have a stereotype for salespeople and then we get a very narrow base of, of people type coming into it. So I guess acknowledging mental health as a sort of thing that we're all conscious of, you know, and recognizing how that relates to sales because sales is a, is a high pressure job, you know, in many ways. Most people in sales would describe it as actually handling, you know, managing stress, you know, is, is one sort of, I guess, like slightly tongue-in-cheek way of describing sales, you know, because it is managing stress. You've got the stress of targets. You've got the stress of, you know, timely delivery. You've got the stress of accessing the people in the, you know, in the prospect organization that you need to access and that how that impacts those things. And you've got the stress of all of that good work still potentially coming to nothing, you know, and managing the, you know, managing the feelings that come from that and managing the impact on on your results that come from that. So there's a lot of stress in it. I think one of the things that I've noticed is that people who love sales obviously thrive because they are they have a certain expectation of what it's about and they have a goal that's motivating. And that when I talked about my son and daughter having a negative description of discipline and actually reframing that as there's something that you want and it's discipline that's going to get you there also affects your mental health. If you know that actually all this hard work you're putting in, all this pressure you're feeling is leading to something positive that helps you cope with the pressure. But I think ultimately, you know, my job and sales leaders jobs is also to make sure these people who are relentless by nature, who are goal driven, who have high standards, who have really important things they want to achieve. And it's really meaningful to them that they they win that business, they get that commission, they can do that really important thing in their personal life with it. You know, there's a there's a lot to help them with. And and I guess when you've got the right people in the job, your job is almost to help help remind them to take breaths, you know, to, to, to change their to get a refreshed perspective, to walk out of the room, come back in, approach it like a brand new situation, and remember that every time you come into a sales job, there's always a mountain to climb. When you've had a couple of weeks off and you look at that mountain, it all seems very achievable. Perhaps when you've been buried for a few months, things start to look a little different. You know, the, the clouds start to come over, the weather starts to change, you know, in your mind, you know, how can I possibly get there? So I think, you know, when you've got those relentless individuals in there, it's your your job and your responsibility to make sure you help them take timeouts, that you help them get a refreshed perspective and that you help them avoid burnout, I guess. Absolutely. Really powerful points in that. I've just got two final questions for you. One of which, what is driving you at this stage of your career, Luke? That is a good question. I think I have arrived at a point where I think, I feel the responsibility of the CRO position because there are so many dependents on on that position in terms of the business is putting a lot of faith and trust in you to get them there. You know, they've made this decision to bring this senior hire in and, and they've got a certain perspective of what impact it should make. You've got a whole load of people that are in the business that already when you arrive that are perhaps looking for the, for some for some mentorship and leadership in their particular discipline. 
and they've, you've got their careers. You've got hard decisions about bringing new people into the business, you know, making it hard because you've got to be the right decisions. Also, perhaps it might be even making some changes in the business. So there's all of these kind of sort of pressures in the role. But what's driving me, I suppose, is I've always wanted to get to the place I could use the approach that we've talked about a lot, you know, in here, you know, a sort of empathetic style of leadership and use use that approach in a meaningful way. Because, you know, observing people that I still class as mentors that might have different styles to me, I've learned a lot of what I need to learn, you know, things that weren't natural to me. And I've taken those on as disciplines, you know, and attributes that are, that are important for me to do my job that weren't naturally occurring. And I've learned them and I've acquired them. But I've also had sort of my more intrinsic style and skill set which i think is just a deep-rooted belief that all people are trustworthy and good and i know that sounds simple but you know i think that's what my mum instilled in me you know and and being out being in a position of authority to basically lead a team with the acquired disciplines and skill sets and processes that you need to get the job done but also bring a genuine empathy to it because you're going to have learned one of those two skill sets you're either going to have the intrinsic skills of discipline and process and other sales characteristics and learn empathy so I guess for me, you know, what's driving me is being able to make the biggest impact I've had in my career on a company's growth from a position of leadership where you can, you can pull the levers, you've got most of the controls. And yes, it's still a collaborative job, but you're in, you're yeah. in a position that you can make the biggest difference in your career. I love it. It's a, a great way to frame that. I have one final question for you. And if you've had a chance to listen to any other episode, you'll know what's coming next. But in essence, we always love to round off why if you were talking to that person out there that wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what would your single best piece of advice be to them? That's a very good question. And I think if it's got to be a single piece of advice, I think it's know that sales is a career that you can go, that you can work your whole life. Know that you can acquire some of the skill sets that you don't have to have them all. So if you look at somebody who's the finished article and you see gaps, you can acquire those skill sets. And take a mentor, because I think as we talked about earlier, that will accelerate things and learn from these knowledge sharing sort of forums as well, because they weren't there before. You know, take advantage of those. Awesome. It's uh, great to have gotten into the mind of a CRO for the second time. So Luke, thank you so much for spending some time with us. For everyone who's been listening, I hope that you've enjoyed that. If you have and you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please be sure to leave that five-star review. And again, if you're watching us on YouTube, I'd really appreciate that like, comment, share and subscribe. I hope that you found today insightful as always, and please be sure to stay tuned for the next one.